Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lexa Rosianne, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Beatrice Duchovny about her new book, Don't Be Sad When I'm Gone, a memoir of loss and healing in Buenos Aires. Dr. Duchovny received a graduate degree in psychology from the University of Buenos Aires and a PhD from the University of Missouri. After a career in private practice, she now sees clients remotely from Argentina and the United States. Don't Be Sad When I'm Gone, a memoir of loss and healing in Buenos Aires is her most recent book. The monumental sense of dislocation we experience after losing a loved one can be life-altering. There is no script for grieving. Each individual passes through their own phases of mourning. In this personal narrative, psychologist Beatrice Duchovny documents how she grieved the loss of her husband and sought therapy during an extended stay in her hometown of Buenos Aires, Argentina. Recounting her healing process day-to-day from shock through recovery This book traces her navigation of the uncertainty and devastation that often engulfs those who have suffered profound loss. Without further ado, I present Dr. Beatrice Duchovny. Welcome to New Books. Tell us about yourself. Thank you, Dexa, for the introduction. I was born and raised in Argentina and lived in the United States most of my life, most of my adult life. My relocation exposed me to various approaches to psychotherapy. The first was Freudian and Kleinian at the University of Buenos Aires in the 60s. After emigrating to the US, I underwent training in the favorite approach of this culture, behavior modification, and uh, the human potential movement in vogue at the time. I was on the faculty at the Kansas City Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis National Institute for the Psychotherapies Training Institute affiliate in New York. Articles I published in peer-reviewed journals range from addressing issues of psychoanalytic psychotherapy techniques and psychoanalytic theory to the analysis of films. My books my two books are informed by psychoanalysis and by cultural anthropology. In a Stranger's Arms, the magic of the tango is concerned with the interior of the dance, what the observer's eyes can't see. It is an in-depth study of how an entire culture is embedded inside a dance. And Don't Be Sad When I'm Gone is a memoir it shows my path through grieving, as you said a moment ago, it presents excerpts of psychoanalytic psychotherapy sessions. Its anthropological dimension lies in the comparison of two cultures in their approach to death. Thank you. I want to say that I'm so excited to speak to you because this is uh, my first uh, interview as host, and I am an Argentine tango dancer for over 25 years. And... Um, I am a psychoanalyst, and I am familiar with grieving. So the first question that we always ask here at New Books and Psychoanalysis, to the degree that you can know your motivation, what prompted you to write this book? Well, 
this book was not planned. I was not planning to write a book in Buenos Aires when I entered it up. In fact, I had been unable to write for two years. One day, I brought the fact that I had been unable to write for two years to my session. And uh, that night, in the middle of the night, I got up to go to the bathroom. And across the narrow hallway, I saw a sign with a title. At that time, the title was Dialogues Between uh, Analyst and Patient. Uh, then it changed to Don't Be Sad. Um, so if I want to find a motivation, I have to say that one thing that was pointed out several times about me, that I have a strong life force inside myself. Uh, that always wins over the other one. And, that is uh, evident in your writing. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, that my life force planted that idea of writing a book because creativity, we know, is very helpful for uh, the grieving process. So pretty much... Uh, at the different times, it had different meanings, the book. Uh, at, then I, at one time, it was my connection with Carlos. He always encouraged my writing and, and applauded my writing. And so I know he would have been very pleased with the publication. And then the last motivation that was not an unconscious motivation is I wanted this book to be uh, different than other books about grief not a self-help book, book, and a book that includes sessions of a treatment that is the opposite of any treatment that I've been exposed to in the United States as a student or as a practicing psychotherapist. I know that in the coast, psychoanalysis is alive, but it's not a popular uh, method of treatment. Well, that leads me to ask you if you can speak about grieving and grief culture, both in the United States and in Argentina. What's the difference? Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, Well, you know, the the United States uh, is is a culture that... uh, it's not good for grieving. In fact, it's pretty toxic for doing the grief uh, process here. Um, there is a really huge disconnect between what is offered for the majority of the people, not for a few select people that are in New York or in the East Coast or in the San Francisco area. Um, for the majority of the people, um, what is available is the cognitive type of approaches to psychotherapy or the behavior modification approaches. So um, I uh, really didn't think that uh, as a culture, um, I wanted to do my grief here. We don't feel comfortable here with messy emotions. Um and we hold this image of the that it comes from economy or theory. At one time, the image of the 
uh, entrepreneur, the self-made entrepreneur, that creates the expectation that we have to do everything on our own. It doesn't matter whether it is to uh, business or whether it is to uh, heal from a tremendous uh, life-changing trauma, which is what losing a person whose life is intertwined with yours. Uh, so it's we are expected, I mean, the culture, not we, but we as a culture, yeah, expect that people will heal by themselves. And then we have this do-it-yourself, we think positive. Uh, so where is the person grieving that has so many confusing feelings, so many messy feelings, uh, negative feelings, as, 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 as they are called in this uh, culture? I mean, there are so many studies about positive feelings and negative feelings. Okay, so we tend to polarize things, you know. But I, uh, what I w- want to point out is that there is no place for the messy emotions of, of grief in society. In Families don't want to hear about that. Friends don't want to hear about that. Uh, they want to change the subject. So um, professional help is not even something that crosses people's mind in the United States. Um, so sometimes uh, help is sought when recalcitrant symptoms develop. And, uh, and once it's too late, what the culture office is medication uh, instead of any warm human containment. We have been... We have better options than those promoted by our current cultural paradigm. I wanted to be treated by a psychoanalyst. It made more sense to me to seek out a human being who could hold my heart that was so broken and uh, for as long as I needed and uh, without hurrying me to get it over with or giving me a paradigm that I have to follow. So for that, um, I have to seek this method that attends to human interiority. And I, the, the psychoanalyst is the best trained um, uh, clinical helper that I know to get their hands on those raw emotions and, and, and navigate them without being afraid. Um, so... Then I was convinced that Buenos Aires, the city of Buenos Aires, was uh, where I should um, go to heal. And um, partly because, but that was not the main reason, but partly because psychoanalysis has been popular there since the uh, late 1980s, uh, before the books of Freud's books were translated to Spanish. They were discussed in French by medical doctors in, in at the medical uh, school. Uh, and it took like this, like the stages of Kubler-Ross took in this culture because he organized a complicated, messy phenomena in stages. In the same manner, it took psychoanalysis took in Buenos Aires, and uh, so it became very popular. We know what's about. I mean, no, we everybody knows the people 
walking in the street, you know, Freud. Yeah, you know, it's like it's part of it's part of who we are. So it's a very plus. It's a non-judgmental. Buenos Aires. I don't feel the judgment uh, that I feel in other cultures. So you know, I can. There's no. Say, there's no. There's no Freud bashing in Buenos Aires. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so nobody feels crazy for seeking help or labels himself as crazy, which is very sad. Is what people I, I get it from people here. It's like, oh, this book, give me that permission. I always thought that there was this stigma. How would I go and seek therapy? Then my neighbors or whoever, my colleagues at work, or where, they are going to think that I'm crazy or that you know I'm weird and. Um, so, well, the main thing is that I wanted to go to Buenos Aires because even in the best of my times, Buenos Aires always is very stimulating. It's a city that stimulates people are, I don't know, there is a way that, 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 that human interaction is just... <laughs> going on all the time like the clock you you don't get out of your house and go out without something interesting happening to you that has to do with an interaction and uh and I still enjoy that uh that meeting with the strangers and and relating to just so that's I was feeling kind of dead or very dead not kind of dead so the idea of feeling stimulated and I had been home most of the time uh, before going to Buenos Aires for six months so the idea of going there and getting this life you know breathing this life that the city uh, exudes it sounded very very wonderful to me um, then um, I had lost of the space of Beatriz and Carlos in my life so going to Buenos Aires was for me to choose a space that was warm and protective. I feel protected. Like, I'm sorry. No, that, that, so what comes to mind is that you work with a psychoanalyst. I wondered if you had any thoughts on the couch and also working with Dr. Novelli, uh, who provided a holding environment or a containment uh, for your feelings um, you spoke a little bit about that, but maybe something more you want to add. Okay. The idea of the couch never appealed to me at this time because I had been talking for six months to Carlos as an abstraction. And once in a while, he appeared. Uh, it's one of the chapters about... Uh, this different faces of Carlos that appear. I mean, the first one was his face when he was dead. And I carry that face with me for about a month. And I like carrying that face because I was pleased that he was not suffering anymore. Um, I mean, it sounds pretty morbid, but it didn't have any morbid feeling to me. And then the face changed to something else, and then the face changed to something else. So I don't want to go into uh, my sessions and not see the face of my analyst. So 
I think that that worked perfect for me to have this because Dr. Nobili works a lot with gestures and uh, and I kind of do too. So that provided a whole area of interaction. I mean, from the first day when I sat down after going around the office, figuring out where I was going to sit down, I sat down in front of him, exactly in front of him. Not this in between, and I just felt that his blue eyes were going to be very important for me to, to relate to because they were calm, they were warm, and they reminded me of the warmth in Carlos' eyes. And so, I mean, his eyes come up probably several times in every chapter of the book. I didn't, I would not get that laying in the couch. And I didn't need to, to do the kind of work that you do in analysis. Uh, um, I was like doing my, you know, the, the therapy was a place of great holding for me because he is a very uh, um, welcoming, warm, and it's like, you know, he's like, imagine him always like this. He's welcoming to hold you. And um, so I've been very, uh, very lucky about that. But I did, I was very glad I had Dr. Novelli had known Carlos as a brief therapy patient a year prior because, because I like Carlos so much, I thought I would do any therapist and they are going to think that I'm really idealizing him just because he died. died. So I knew nobody knew him and he would have a, a, a way to measure that I was not idealizing him crazy. I felt like that really all my life about him because I like him. And, um... Wow. It felt like a blessing. Yes. Very from much Ca- so. From Carlos, in a way. Yes. He, he offered me to... to to go to the last session, we we were coming back, and he went to do this short-term therapy because he had been, his cancer had been diagnosed there, so he we had to stop and come back, and uh, and I looked at him, at Doctor Novelli, with my psychologist side, because I always find fault <laughs> with technique and people that break the frame and things like that. And here there was this very wise man, um, comfortable with himself. And uh, I just said to Carlos when we left, if I ever needed a therapist, I know to come to him. I think Carlos took me there because he knew how picky I was choosing a therapist. And, um, and he wanted to me to have that resource. Um, there was a chapter of the book that surprised me in how, in the honesty and the depth of it, uh, it was very difficult to read, but so important. And I want to ask you about that, about the experience of the medical system for you and for Carlos. 
well, that was extremely traumatic. And, you know, what um, what happened is that um, I think that most people, most families that go through the through oncology treatments and oncology departments with cancer patients are equally traumatized as I was. And we cannot do anything about that. Or we cannot even be good advocates because the system is set up in such a way that you are kept away um, and they don't hear what you have to say. Um, so you, I saw malpractice in action, at least three instances of malpractice I mentioned in the book, uh, gross malpractice, in which he did harm, you know, the oath is to first do no harm, but they did harm. And, um, and I don't want to go into the details of each one, but they are in the book. And then we don't say anything. And then the patient dies, and we are going to we're going to have that other land that everything changes. We change inside the world changes, and we are preoccupied with that. So all these wrongdoers get away with murder, really with murder, and. Um, so that's very traumatic. I held that inside until I went to see Dr. Novelli. And then I said, you know, today is the day I'm going to talk about these horrors. They are like bricks I have inside that I couldn't get out for like, you know, two years that they've been accumulating. And I said, you're going to be the first witness of the wrongdoingness. And um, you know how the trauma patients need a witness. And um, in, in this, like, to hold that experience, you know, they don't need interpretations. They don't need anything. They just need to be, you to be there and hold them. And... Um, well, so one one thing that you know I was able to do in therapy was is to and um, I mean I'm talking about a an university hospital, a teaching hospital where that happened, but there was a very good hospital in Houston, the Anderson, the MD Anderson Hospital, that was the only exception to that rule in which they taught the families how to be better advocates. Oh, because they know that was our first stop. They know we go to other places in the country where we need to advocate and, and we can, we don't know how. The other part um, that was terrible, traumatic was the, um, uh, the death with dignity. Carlos chose to um, schedule what is called in Oregon death with dignity, in which a medical doctor can write a prescription and be with you while you take the lethal substance. 
and you have to pass numerous tests of being oriented. I mean, it's like, and, and submit the application several times to be sure that nobody forced you that. Okay, so he had to do that. He, we had decided together a long time ago that that's the way we were going to deal with a lingering death. We didn't want to linger. Carlos had been the um, the doctor around the clock when her mother, his mother died, and he was giving her morphine, and she died in his arms. And that was so traumatic how his mother lingered, lingered until she was nothing but skin and bones. And we decided we are not going to do that to our families. So we scheduled this, and the doctor, in fact, did come to the home, and um, and he forgot to tell me one step of the procedure. He had told me every step of the procedure. So he did this, okay, he did that, okay, I knew. He did that, okay, I knew. But then he says to me, well, I'm ready to give Carlos his substance to drink. He has to drink it in two minutes. Is he ready to do that? Because he's not ready to drink it in two minutes. He doesn't drink at all. He may not die. He may just be totally brain damaged. We don't know what that could. And that was crazy making because I didn't know that. So I ran and I tell Carlos and I tell my daughter about that and Carlos says let's go ahead anyway and uh, and I mean what else are we going to do at that point right so when he started drinking the substance and this is the horror the horror I have a chapter on the horror I carry in my heart this is the horror I carry is that when he starts drinking and then you know it's almost <laughs> there is more there and he's not really drinking. And then we had to start, Carlos, please take another sip. Dad, dad, another one, another one. And it's like we are begging him to die. I mean, that that is something I don't want to remember. That experience I don't want to remember. It's but like you had to but, you had to talk about it with Dr. Novelli and you had to write about it. Yes, and I want to write about for others too. Don't think it's 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 a, it's a path of roses. The death with dignity it has its plus. Now, after I got very angry with the doctor, then I felt grateful to him because very few doctors would do that. And if it wasn't for him, that was did it carefully stay open peel after peel after peel and put it inside in it and then they water and stir it up and then when and then uh, took care of him clinically and and told us when he had died. If it weren't for him, for those doctors, people would have to just be resigned to to linger. Now, Carlos was even four months to live, so he didn't have much life. 
when he was discovered. Which takes me to something about the medical system that I didn't say, is that the medical system is very generous with uh, treating pain with opioids when the patients are inpatient because they come, the patient. And um, so Carlos was delusional. He had all kinds of problems when he was inpatient with opioids, but they had no problem with the opioids. But when you go home, then the system gets stingy. They don't want to give you opioids for your pain because they are afraid that you're going to get addicted. So what exactly is the problem if a cancer patient that is terminal gets addicted? I don't know. One of the many craziness of the system. That is very crazy. Thank you for, I feel that's very brave for you to be able to speak about this. And I want to ask if you can address the mourning process of being one of destruction and construction of the psyche. Yes. You know, um, uh, the, the common idea is that, you know, the person that is grieving is... Uh, experiencing um, sadness and all the related emotions around sadness and despondency. And, uh, and this is, is, is one, one part of the, the feeling part. But really, I feel like, you know, if I... I picture myself as a, you know, like a shelving, like a bookcase. And it's like when that happened, that those shelves fell down to the floor. It's like the structures, the psychological structures that were there, it's like they get destroyed and they have to be put back together. And they cannot, what was destroyed cannot be back put back together in three or four sessions um, and what is worse, even worse than this, is that I think that most practicing therapies that don't practice from a psychoanalytic perspective don't even think about that, that the distraction is, is so intense inside of the, of the grieving person that, that gets out of like a marriage of 50 years. Um, so, so yes, uh, I think that I went through a lot of uh, building structure. Uh, I did not notice, for example, that I didn't have any self-esteem, not any. I have a plummeting self-esteem, which was obvious to my analyst, but not to me. And I didn't notice that I was frozen in a present uh, that was not the present anymore. In that prison, Carlos was alive, you know, and Carlos is alive in so many ways for like over a year as I go through therapy in different ways. He's alive and I look for him in the city and and I still 
talk with him and um so and I remember having two cells you know it's like I'm divided one and I remember talking about that in my session is I have this self that is myself in grief that has just very low self-esteem and uh, that doesn't have much hope. And then at times I am talking from my enduring self of when I was well. And here I am, good self-esteem, go do this and go do that and keep it all going and all together. And I said, I feel betrayed by myself in grief. Would my real enduring self stand up? So that's distraction. And that in time, I mean, they see two different realities and they talk a different language. And in time, they are going to come together. That's the, the construction and um, yeah well I, I'd like to read this excerpt from the review by Linda Jacobs on your book Freud 1917 in Mourning and Melancholia makes it clear that true mourning depends on the early interjection of an identification with a good object in melancholia, the diminution of self-regard and increase in self-reproach is actually a reproach of the loved object. Freud's fundamental understanding is that mourning depends on the withdrawal of libido from the lost object and a displacement onto a new one or to life itself. And this is what Duchovny's memoir is essentially about. Ultimately, she chooses life itself and heeding the deepest and authentic wishes of Carlos in Buenos Aires, she embarks on a return to life that is truly restorative. Thus, her memoir highlights the power of a sustained, reliable internalization of the good object. And so, Beatrice, this leads me to ask you the question, because it, reading your book, it just, for me, the, you invoke the feelings and the smells and the sights and the sounds and the sensations of being right there in Buenos Aires. And it, so I want to ask you about your love of Buenos Aires and how the city itself becomes both an internal through memories and external through your physical return there, good object. Yeah, well, I've always, uh, I didn't start my love of Buenos Aires, you know, uh, five years ago. I, I've been in love with that city uh, for life uh, because every time I go there, I come back rejuvenated. Uh, I, it's the, all the emotions. I love that city going there because of the emotions it brings out in me and the high dose of human interaction. And Everything in the city moves, all moves me. I mean, all those things that you just mentioned, I mean, those things move me because I don't take them for granted. <laughs> they are like precious. And uh, <laughs> imagine going from here to there that we kiss a stranger because that stranger is friend of a friend. Uh, that we stroke the arm of people we are talking with. At the end of the day, you've been touched so much. And 
and receive so much warmth. And, uh, and that's something that not just, I don't feel that alone. I, I was there just recently. I just came back from Buenos Aires and the people that are there from other cultures say, I feel more at home here than in my own culture. And everybody wants to come back and everybody wants to go to Buenos Aires. For why? why? For the people. It's not for tango. They say it's for tango, but then when they come here and they dance, they still miss something. And it's, I think it means they miss the this big family. <laughs> Sometimes I think about Buenos Aires and say big family, you know. And uh, so this are, are what I call nutritious habits, you know, nutritious of the soul, nutritious of and and then we come here and those same habits are offensive acts like if you just accidentally touch the arm of a person because you're standing in line well go to the subways of Buenos Aires and get over that <laughs> you know um, so also in Buenos Aires there is this story of my 20, the 20 years of my life that is alive. It's alive in the people today. It's it's, it's that thing that happens through time, you know. It's like, um, it's alive in the way of being of of the people. I I am there, I am then, them, and then they are me. And then we have the same roots. So for me, it's a very interconnected way. And it felt more that way during that year of grieving. Um, I was in an island. I was never felt like an island, like I could feel here. I can look out the window today and I feel a little bit like an island. Um, I never feel that way in Buenos Aires. Um, so I was very Thursday for everything past and present, living and no longer alive there. And, um, yeah, the, the way of being of the people turned the whole city into a self-object for me. Uh, Taylor made... And everyone's in psychoanalysis. (laughs) Yes. The highest consumption of psychoanalysis is higher than in France. We have. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so there I have the city as a tailor-made self-ogee for me, Carlos, my self-ogee for life, that although they still satisfies my narcissistic needs many times, and Dr. Novelli is self-object par excellence. And, um, and Buenos Aires holding me like a somatic mother, you know, with all the sensations and the smells and the touch and this and the that. What more could I wish for to do my grief? What a better environment than that. I, I was really happy I made that choice. You made an excellent choice. And the city was rough on me because every, I go by a restaurant that was our favorite one with Carlos and it hits me. Darn it, 
she's saying he's not here. So she would hit me like that. Every time I recognize something that was with Carlos, he said, she's saying, he's not here. And then in therapy, I'm, I'm figuring out, you know, how much he's here or he's not here. So she was rough too, but I had the hope that she would know how to kill me. So I'd, I'd like to end with a discussion of the tango. Uh, you write that you encourage readers to pursue dance as a path to grieving, that tango is so respectful of the human condition that no one would be offended if it were danced at a funeral. And by the way, I, I can attest to that because a dear friend of ours, Rosa Cojantes, she passed away, a young woman in her 30s from breast cancer, and the people in the community danced the tango at her uh, funeral, and it was, it was very beautiful. Um, and it, no one was offended. But I want to know your current thoughts about this and anything you you want to say about tango. Um, well, my thoughts have not changed about that. Um, I still recommend it. Um, in fact, many people come to tango after the loss. I don't know if you've noticed that. The, the divorce or somebody died in the family, or and they come to tango, is that some people just gravitate to this dance that has this embrace. And for even for if, me, it was unconscious. My mother died, and then uh, two months later, I began <laughs> studying tango, and it didn't even connect the two for many years. That's right. Yes, that's right. But sometimes we make very intelligent choices <laughs> without knowing where they come from. So, you know, what I said about tango is that for me, it was the royal road to healing. And I went so early back to tango that if I was one of those people that cares what others think about me, I would not have gone um, because it was early. I mean, I had a friend that was here prompting me on Sundays. He came for breakfast and prompted me to to go back, and I was not ready to go back on week one, week two, or week three. And week three, he says, he was the DJ at the Milonga, and he said, if you come, I will um, dance with you. If you had hesitant to dance with other people. And I say, yes, immediate trust. Not only that, but he also put a tanda of Alberto Podesta, the singer, that he knew I was related to him. I was friends with him and I was very emotional about him. And boy, that combination of my friend Alberto Podesta, he was the biggest shot of life I got in the first month of my being a, a widow. I don't like that word. No, <laughs> word. we need a better word. Yes. So, um, what is the, the saying? Uh, el, el tango es un pensamiento triste. Help me with que, this. Que se baila. Tango que es un se baila. Sí, tango es un pensamiento. It's a, it's a sad thought that we dance too. 
So it makes perfect sense that one could be in mourning and want to dance tango. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, those poets that sing those sad uh, lyrics or the music that is very nostalgic. <coughs> tango music is extremely nostalgic. It makes you think of something old, something that is no longer, something that was better than now. Um, yeah. Yeah, I felt that, you know, they were my partners in grief, you know, the composers and the poets. Because I, when I dance, I'm very connecting with the lyrics and with the music. And so it's like, yeah. And then I am connected to somebody that is warm. And, of course. And alive. And alive. And yes, yes. I want to ask you, I want to ask you to dance. You know, I lead in the tango, so maybe one day. But I really want to ask you what you're currently working on. Well, right now I am, I finished rewriting the book in in Spanish. I have a debt with Carlos and with Dr. Novelli uh, of writing that book in Spanish. I, I talked about that. With, with both of them about that. And uh, because particularly Dr. Ravelli was so gracious to give permission for me to write those. And he didn't care what I said because he said, I said, well, don't you care to, to see if I said anything that you didn't say? And I'm just like, no, that's your, <laughs> what you said is yours. It's <laughs> not mine anymore. <laughs> All right. Uh, but I did send him a few translations. So I had that, and uh, I gave it to three different translators, and I just didn't like what they did with it. It wasn't my voice. It wasn't what I wanted to say. It wasn't my tone. And um, so I talked with an editor there that she was a teacher and a fabulous teacher that I took some uh, creative writing with her about six months ago. I didn't even make the connection that mm. I did it over the internet. I said, I'm here, everybody had a lot of writing. I said, I never wrote in Spanish. <laughs> well, <laughs> our <laughs> Spanish listeners can look forward to reading that in Spanish. So I, I want to end our interview with a tango, a special tango. I asked Beatrice uh, what she would prefer. And so this is a tango by uh, one of uh, my favorite uh, orchestras, um, Fresedo. Do you want to tell us the name and the meaning? Uh, and then we'll yeah. play it. Okay. The name is Sojosos. And uh, what are Sojosos? They translate as sobs. which like that, like, that you don't have, you cry, like, with movements, with interrupting the, the, the crying with, I don't know how to put it. Do you have the definition I sent to you? I don't have it in front of me. Maybe I do. Uh, sometimes carried out when crying inconsolably, and that consists of several abrupt broken breaths followed by an exhalation. Exactly that. Yeah. 
I really want to thank you, Beatrice. It was such a great interview, and your book is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it a lot, Lexa. <laughs> We shall dance. Yay! <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.